You are about to hear episode number 100 of The Curbsiders with the wonderful Dr. Scott Matherly, who is at LiverProf on Twitter. We are going to talk all about the diagnosis of cirrhosis on this part one. On part two, which will air next week, we will be talking all about the management of cirrhosis and common medication questions that we had as practicing internists. This episode is packed with information and extremely valuable. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this one as much as we did. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hi, Matt. Hey, Stuart. We got hey. we have a bunch of people recording with us tonight. Uh, we do. I thought it was just you and me. No, I think Paul's here. Paul, as much as I ever am. <laughs> oh, hi, Paul. <laughs> and uh, young Cyrus, young Cyrus, returning for four or five. I don't remember anymore, Cyrus. I, I think I think this is number five for me. It's number great five. to be here. Yeah, young Cyrus. That sounds like a Jedi name. Yes, thank you, thank you, Cyrus, for joining us again on the show. Oh, that's right. Cyrus the Younger was a Persian general. Forget about that. <laughs> and Cyrus the Great was the king of Persia. Uh, yeah, but I, he called you Young Cyrus, not Great Cyrus. All right, Paul, did you want to tell the audience what, uh, before they all tune out, did you want to tell them what we do on this show? <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to, Matt. <laughs> I'm sorry, I drifted away for a second now. Uh, this is an internal medicine podcast that brings you expert opinions and practice-changing knowledge. Um, and little and then occasionally history. we sort of mess around at the top 10 minutes and actually just sort of get to know our guests a little bit and talk about uh, life and work-life balance and mentorship and that kind of stuff. So feel free to skip past that part if you just want to get right to the good stuff um, and be a worse person for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cyrus, why don't you set up this episode? Absolutely. So I'm super stoked to be here. I think this is the 100th Curbsiders episode. Very, very exciting. Uh, but it's also an episode on cirrhosis, which I think is a really important topic. And I will say, I do have to shout out to my buddy, Dave Delaney, who's a physician where I work, who had some great questions and helped, uh, helped guide me as I kind of thought through this, a comprehensive discussion on cirrhosis and on all the causes and everything would just take forever. We're going to focus on the diagnosis and management of cirrhosis. And we're going to be guided by, by our fearless leader, Dr. Scott Matherly from VCU. Dr. Matherly is an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. He's board certified as an internist, also in gastroenterology and transplant hepatology. He completed medical school at the University of South Carolina, residency at Johns Hopkins, and completed his fellowship training in GI and transplant hepatology at VCU. As a member of the faculty at VCU, he has been recognized no fewer than five times as the VCU School of Medicine Teacher of the Year. In addition to his teaching responsibilities, Dr. Matherly is the co-director of the Multidisciplinary Hepatocellular Cancer Clinic in the Hume Lee Transplant Center. He does a fantastic job teaching us all about cirrhosis, diagnosis, pathophysiology, and all sorts of little treatment pearls. This is a packed episode, and I hope you find it as useful as we did. That's right, Matt. Dr. Matherly really delivers. <laughs> That's not bad. I, I concur, Paul. <laughs> huh. It must be getting late. 
<laughs> Scott, thank you for joining us tonight. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here, and I'm super excited to be here for your 100th episode. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> not, that's right. It is. It's nice that you finally got around to the largest visceral organ in the body 100 episodes in. <laughs> Figured we'd get there eventually. <laughs> Better late than never, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we are going to talk all about cirrhosis tonight. Uh, first, I got to ask you our normal question. Can you give the audience a one-liner so they can kind of get to know who is Scott Matherly at LiverProf? Sure. I'm, I'm a 43-year-old dad. Uh, I have two wonderful kids. I have a little boy named Kenny who's eight and a daughter who's five and Josie, and she's the light of my life. I'm a gardener. Uh, I'm a big soccer fan. Uh, I'm, a, I have a, I'm a sufferer of wanderlust, <laughs> and I'm a big... A very big nature nerd. I, I'm obsessed with volcanoes, and I'm uh, dying that I'm not able to go to Hawaii right now. Oof. I might be dying in Hawaii. Yeah, well. That's, that's a great answer. You're not, the first, uh, you're not the first physician to tell us that they are a gardener. I definitely have to, and one of my residents on rounds, actually, we were doing like icebreakers today, was telling me that gardening, that's like how he spends most of his time out and money outside of the hospital. And I was like, I need to get into this gardening thing. It sounds kind of like peaceful. I could use some of that in my life. Paul's rolling his eyes pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds exhausting. <laughs> I'm mostly grow carnivorous plants. So uh, it's, I have a little violence in my gardening. <laughs> that is interesting. We have a Venus flytrap that's currently eating itself right now. Is that something I should be expecting? Or uh... Uh, Absolutely. If they get hungry enough, they'll turn to cannibalism. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I didn't know you were also an expert on carnivorous plants, but we'll save that for another show. Did, did any of you guys want to ask him any questions? Paul? Sure. I'll ask my usual low-stakes question that started out very specific and is now. We're now down to just give me a book recommendation, any book recommendation at all. Something with words. Ideally. Oh. I don't usually read, but uh, <laughs> no, there is one book, and I don't know if you guys know about this, but it's called uh, Attending uh, Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity. Uh, it's by uh, uh, Dr. I think he's uh, up in uh, New York named Ronald Epstein. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a book about mindfulness and, and being a physician and being an attending. Uh, it's really a fascinating book. Uh, Helped me get through a tough spot of uh, burnout there last year or two. Uh, yeah. It's really a great book. I've read it once, and I'm working my way through it again. Yeah, for someone who uh, self-proclaimed does not read, I mean, this book just came out last year, it looks like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Pretty up there. Yeah, I, I mostly stick to nonfiction, i got to say. Cyrus, do you have a question you want to ask? Oh, sure, yeah. So, uh, let's see. So... Uh, Scott, I do know that you, uh, one of your hobbies, you are a bit of a gamer. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask, what's your favorite game these days? Oh, I play a lot of PlayStation 4, and uh, I play Battlefield 1. I know this, oh is like to this is totally nerdy, right? But I'm <laughs> I'm a member of this big giant platoon of fathers who play together. <laughs> the father's on a mission. So, it's incredibly uh, historically accurate. Oh, yeah, we love it. Love it. Very excited about the new one coming out in the fall. Ah, yes. Very, very cool. That's, yes, nothing medically relevant. I just had to ask. Uh, okay, so I'm going to jump back to something that's at least somewhat medically uh, relevant. What's the best advice that you've ever received as either a learner or as a teacher? That's a great question. Um, that's a hard one to kind of 
think about. I remember when I was a medical student, I had uh, the program director of my internal medicine program. His name was Sean Stenson. This was at the University of South Carolina. Uh, when I was interviewing for residencies, um, I asked him what he looked for in residence. And uh, he, he told me, I don't care about board scores. I want a resident who's going to read the old chart. <laughs> you know, I, I want a resident who's going to read the old record. And, you know, that stuck with me. And, you know, I've kind of like shaped my career around that. You know, I, I've always prided myself on being the one that goes the extra mile, reads the reads the old chart, reads the record. So I, I guess that would be it. I love that. That's great. Yeah. Okay, gentlemen, before we move on into the topic, did anybody, uh, Cyrus, Paul, Stuart, did any of you guys have like a burning pick of the week that you really felt was important to give? Otherwise, we can move on. I have a pick of the week that I just have to get out there because it's rare that I find myself just bawling in tears. It doesn't happen that often, but I did with this book, (laughs) but I I will be honest. I did with this book at the very end. I was able to get through it in a two and a half hour flight. The book is called the art of racing in the rain by Garth Stein. It was recommended by my wife. uh, So shout out to her. It is a absolutely non medically relevant book, but it's just a beautiful, beautiful story about a race car driver who goes through some very difficult uh, personal challenges And the story is told by his dog. Um, And so it's just a very, very interesting perspective. It's just uh, the highs and the lows and everything in between. It's just incredible. It was a great break from medicine. And I absolutely recommend it to anyone who's trying to just take a break from uh, from charts, take a break from H&Ps and medical literature and just enjoy something for the sake of enjoying it. All right. Thank you, Cyrus. I don't really enjoy crying that much, but, uh, you know, maybe. <laughs> it was consider- cathartic. It was cathartic. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. How about a clinical case from Cashlack, Cyrus? Sure thing. All right, let's go right into it. So uh, Miss Jones, she is a 54-year-old female. She's coming into Cashlack to see her primary care doctor. She's on lisinopril, hydrochlorothiazide, atorvastatin, metformin, and citagliptin. Despite her reported attempts to lose weight, Miss Jones has gained about 12 pounds since her last visit. She now weighs 235 pounds with a body mass index of about 38. Prior to her appointment, the nurse tells you to put in for screening labs, which are notable for an AST and ALT of 57 and 74, respectively. Prior uh, labs from five years ago show an AST and ALT of 22 and 26, respectively, with platelets in the normal range. Other than feeling more fatigued than she has in the previous years, she's pretty much asymptomatic and doesn't have any exam findings uh, other than her obese abdomen. And so um, kind of going from there, uh, my question to you, Scott, would be as a hepatologist, when you hear about a patient like Ms. Jones, uh, what about her history and physical might suggest cirrhosis? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, When you look at the presentation here, she doesn't have any physical exam findings, but that's where I would always start with a patient. Um, Do you know there are seven hand findings of cirrhosis? I always teach this to my to my learners on the wards. Can can you guys think of any? Palmer erythema, Dupuchens, contractures. Better not get all seven. <laughs> Asterixis is kind of a hand finding. It's a it's a motor finding. Yeah, so you got three of them. That's good. So Terry's nails. That, um, when right. I start my physical exam, I always look at the fingernails, and I think this was something that was beaten into me in residency. But um, I, I always start with the hands, and I always look at people's fingernails. Terry's nails, you know, is when the lunula or the white part of the nail comes out about two thirds of the way. Uh, it's pretty common in cirrhotic patients. 
certainly not specific, but it is something that I look at. Uh, Palmer erythema, uh, which you see on Athena and Hypothena are eminences. Um, the putrin, so I run into those fairly frequently. Uh, clubbing, that's another one that you don't think about, oh, but sure. we see that, especially with hepatopulmonary syndrome. Uh, spider angiomas can sometimes be on the hands, and then uh, muscle wasting. That's the other uh, another sign of cirrhosis in the hands. So I always start with the hands. Um, that's one of the big physical exam things that I think people overlook uh, when they're seeing these patients. Um, but when you look at the presentation that you gave, uh, there's nothing that's extremely jumping out as cirrhosis except for one thing, and that's the platelet count. When when as a hepatologist, when I look at labs uh, on someone I'm suspecting might have advanced liver disease or chronic liver disease, the platelet count being low is like an immediate red flag. Uh, it shoots up um, my concern significantly uh, because a platelet count of 140,000, even though that was on the lower lim limit of what is probably considered normal, uh, may suggest that they have uh, a portal hypertension, maybe hypersplenism or something like that. Oh, that's that's a great uh, that's a great summary of kind of some some physical exam findings we should look at, um, and also uh, some of the labs we should be paying attention to. Uh, even you know, backing up even before the case presentation, I did say that uh, the the uh, patient had this these labs put in, and so uh, one question I had was: Is there a role for getting CMPs in kind of high risk patients or patients you're concerned might have uh, non alcoholic stay out of hepatitis or even cirrhosis? Yeah. Um from my standpoint, there is, but I guess that would be a professional opinion. <laughs> if, if you go if you go strictly by the guidelines, uh, it's a little bit of a, a gray zone, I would say. You know, the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease says that you shouldn't necessarily be looking for NASH in primary care clinics, even in high-risk patients, uh, but you should uh, be diligent for its presence, <laughs> uh, hmm. whatever that means. <laughs> um, Don't screen the screen. Yeah, but on a on a the, the kind of important thing from a, com a comprehensive metabolic panel, uh, the important point here is to kind of know what is normal, uh, and this is a this is a huge issue because most labs what what they consider normal for an AST and an ALT are not what um, the evidence would suggest is normal. I've heard that uh, before. Yeah. Yeah, in particular, an ALT for a female should be somewhere in the neighborhood of nineteen to twenty five. Uh, and for a male, 29 to 33. So I basically just think of 20 for a female and 30 for a male. So if you go back to our patient here, her ALT of 57 is almost two times the upper, uh, almost three times the upper limit of normal, uh, suggesting significant inflammation. Um, you could have an ALT of 43, 45 on your CMP, and that could be called normal in your facility when you'd really be looking at two times upper limit of normal. And the studies have clearly shown that people with AS ALTs above these levels have higher liver-related mortality. Uh, so that's why hepatologists in particular are pretty picky about our ALTs. I think most of us are, are used to having patients that have already been diagnosed with cirrhosis and so, sort of someone has already told us they have cirrhosis. It, it's less often that we get to make the diagnosis uh, as an initial presentation. So I guess one of the questions, something that we see kind of often, like a patient will get a CAT scan for another reason and they'll mention cirrhotic appearance of the liver or an ultrasound for another reason. Um, is that one of the most common ways that people actually get diagnosed with cirrhosis or initially like become suspects or 
how are you, how do you think most patients kind of get found out? Is it with like some big cirrhosis related event and decompensation? Well, decompensation is un- unfortunately a fairly common way of presenting with cirrhosis or liver cancer. Um, but yeah, your, your incidentaloma finding of cirrhosis is very, very common, especially in your fatty liver disease patient, because the problem with cirrhotic patients is they often don't have symptoms. You know, they don't, they don't have anything screaming cirrhosis. Most of them have no idea anything is going on uh, until you, you know, they show up in emergency room with abdominal pain or something. They end up getting a CAT scan. Uh, so unless we're really looking for this um, strongly, a lot of times these things are missed until they have very advanced disease. Let's say we we had imaging of a patient like this where they they have this incidental finding of cirrhosis at what point do we need to get you involved and at what what basic testing would you do to make sure that we sort of lock down this as a diagnosis uh, of cirrhosis well you know i would prefer that they be sent to me immediately when they have cirrhosis um you know i i consider myself a bit of a cirrhosis specialist so <laughs> I, I like to see everybody with cirrhosis. You know, cirrhosis can uh, kill you in a few different ways, and you have to have to be fairly uh, up to date and diligent about about very specialized testing for the patients with cirrhosis. So, I think early referral to hepatology the better, if, if possible, in your area. Uh, if not, we can talk about uh, later on, like what what special things need to be done for for patients with cirrhosis. Let's say you just had the patient with the incidental finding on imaging. What what should be the next steps? Is it you know are there are there scoring systems? Are there do, do all these patients should they just proceed to biopsy? What like what sort of steps should we go through to sort of figure this out if it really is cirrhosis or not? Well, I would start fairly basic. Uh, to be honest with you, I, I mean we already have a comprehensive metabolic panel. There are other things that we can look at to give a, ourselves a sense of how advanced their liver disease might be. Uh, the albumin level uh, is very important uh, as a prognostic indicator in cirrhosis. So when I have a patient with uh, who's coming to say see me for hepatitis C, um, in addition to looking at the platelets, probably the second thing I look at is the albumin level. Is that normal? Is that low? Uh, low albumin, you know, there's other things that can cause low albumin, such as nephrotic syndrome or a protein-losing enteropathy. But uh, hypoalbuminemia due to liver disease suggests advanced liver disease. So when you see that, that's obviously a concerning. And then the INR, the prothrombin time, uh, if that's elongated or abnormal, also can be a sign of, of advanced liver disease. And that is actually the most sensitive marker for hepatic function uh, out of the bunch. You know, the liver makes all of our blood's clotting factors except for factor eight. Uh, and so the, the INR does tend to elongate as, as the liver function decreases. Uh, with regards to scoring systems, um, there are scoring systems. There's a lot of scoring systems out there um, that uh, some of them are disease-specific, so, such as the, the NAFLD fibrosis score. Um, some of them are less specific, such as the FIB4. Uh, the utility of these things are in people more that you don't suspect or don't know if they have cirrhosis or not. I, I think if you have an imaging study that's clearly showing you a nodular liver with an enlarged spleen, then your diagnosis is made. And, and at that point, you need to concentrate more on why do they have cirrhosis, you know, ruling out the, the common causes of liver diseases, I say. You know, in, in this patient in particular, obviously, you would be concerned about fatty liver diseases and, and etiology. But for me, that's a disease, mm-hmm. that's a diagnosis of exclusion.
right? Um, you know, when I when I take out my old TI-83 calculator and look, <laughs> at her, look at her age and plug that in, I'm seeing that she was born in 1964. Um, so um, she fits within the, the birth cohort that you should be screening for hepatitis C. Uh, even if they do not, uh, 1945 to 1965, anybody born in those age ranges, uh, the Centers for Disease Control recommend they should be tested for hepatitis C. Uh, so that would be, you know, test, testing her for that um, and other kind of common uh, liver diseases uh, would be my first start. Now, you mentioned the FIB4 score, which um, I actually think that it was developed at your institution, if I remember correctly, or by a was by, by my colleagues. Ah, very cool. Very cool. So, so in, in doing some research, I found that it looks like there's the, the nice thing about it is it does correlate to a certain degree with the, uh, the ISHAC pathologic rating that you might, um, derive from a, a liver biopsy. Can you, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, the FIB4 was initially developed for, uh, uh, assessing the amount of fibrosis in patients with HIV and hepatitis C co-infection, but, but it was later, uh, shown to work very well in hepatitis C, and and sub- more recently has been shown to work very well in fatty liver disease. So this is a fairly simple score. You know, it involves uh, the AST, the ALT, the age of the patient, and their platelet level. And um, you can just plug it into any number of of calculators that exist. Um, I always just Google it, and there's an MD Calc one or something like that. It's really easy. Any non-invasive measure of fibrosis uh, tends to be fairly good on the margins when it comes to, you know, detecting whether a patient has fibrosis. So if the FIB4 tells you that there's no fibrosis there, it's very good at, at that, okay? If the FIB4 tells you that there's advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis, it's very good at that. Um, and the sensitivity, I think, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 85%. But it... Uh, it loses its usefulness sort of in the middle. Like if you find, if you find any kind of indeterminate scoring, um, it, it loses its, its usefulness. So if I have a patient who's coming to say, see me for fatty liver disease, I often will calculate a FIB4. And if the FIB4 is low, then that may, uh, that, that usually gives me peace of mind uh, that I can probably follow this patient uh, a little less aggressively. Um, maybe just, concentrate on lifestyle modifications and stuff like that. Whereas if the FIB4 is high or even medium and I don't have anything screaming cirrhosis in particular, that may push me more towards uh, more, more specific testing, like maybe a fiber scan or a liver biopsy. Oh, okay. So, so you can kind of use the, those intermediate values to help dictate what the next step may, uh, the, the next diagnostic step would be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see a lot of fatty liver patients in clinic, and a lot of them have abnormal liver enzymes. When we see a fatty liver patient, we're always, you know, trying to figure out, is this somebody I have to worry about? Is this somebody with NASH and fibrosis, or is this not? Because 80% of the 80% of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease patients are not NASH patients, and, and even those patients may have elevated liver enzymes. So short of a liver biopsy, it's kind of hard to tease those folks apart. Um Besides getting an ultrasound to look for like gross nodularity or splenomegaly, enlarged portal vein, other signs of cirrhosis, you know, the FIB4 is probably my first test um, just to determine whether I need to more, you know, move on to the fiber scan and move on to the move on to the liver biopsy potentially. And just so I'm understanding, I, I often see 
what to me seems like a surprising amount of enthusiasm for liver biopsy um, <laughs> for the patients that I send. Is that is that for is that primarily useful for risk stratification or what what kind of data does that give you that sort of helps for the patient's care? Well, the liver biopsy it, it's essentially the definitive test, right? So it, it tells it's the gold standard. Um, but even that is not perfect. You know, liver biopsies suffer from, you know, sampling bias. So I think we remove like one thirty thousandth of the liver with the <laughs> liver biopsy, uh, if I remember correctly. I like those odds. Uh, yeah. So, but, but most liver diseases are fairly uniform and throughout the liver. Um, we, we take comfort in being able to see under the microscope that what we think is happening is actually what's happening. Uh, on more than one occasion, I've, I've biopsied somebody thinking it was NASH, and it turned out not to be NASH. And maybe it's a autoimmune type picture, immune-mediated liver injury, something like that. Um, so we, we always like uh, to do liver biopsy. But I will say that my short time as a hepatologist, I've, I've been a faculty hepatologist for five years. Um, the... The enthusiasm for liver biopsy has dropped off significantly. I, I would say um, we, we're much less likely to get them in the day in this day and age, since we can easily do fiber scans in most cases, and we also have this uh, group of just sort of easy calculations that are useful. So you you had mentioned the the shear wave elastography. I wanted to get your opinion about that. How about how accurate that is for the diagnosis of cirrhosis? Well, I guess it depends on what disease process you're talking about. I, I would say for, for hepatitis C and hepatitis B, uh, vibration control transient elastography um, is, is extremely accurate. Um, once again, uh, just like any other non-invasive measure, it does better on the margins than it does in the middle. Um, we, it's, it's very good at telling us if they have cirrhosis. It, it's very good if the, if it's telling, if they do not have fibrosis in the fatty liver disease patient in particular, in your obese diabetic, um, you start to have to interpret the, the, the elastography with a little bit more diligence, I would say. Okay. Because the, the way these machines work is they basically, I call them the thumper test. I always tell my patients, you know, it's basically an ultrasound probe, with a little nubbin that comes off the end of it. We just press a button on it and it thumps them. And, and when it thumps them, it just sends a wave right through the, through the liver. And it can do two things, you know, it measures both the speed of that wave as it, as it goes through the liver tissue. And it also measures kind of how far that wave propagates into the liver. And by doing so, it can tell us both the stiffness of the liver, which correlates very closely to fibrosis, but it also can uh, tell us basically and give us an estimation of how much fat is in the liver, because that 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 wave uh, is dampened by fat, almost like it, it would be like going through a liquid. And as a result, uh, we can use that what we call controlled attenuation parameter or cap to tell us how much fat's in the liver. But conversely, that can also interfere with your readings, okay? And so, so people that have a lot of fat in their liver, uh, that can the machine can read over like oh, the liver as being overly stiff. And and uh, the bottom line is that this technology was developed in Europe with uh, fairly thinner human beings than than, than what we see <laughs> here in the United States. Whoa, whoa, so, I don't think I'm following. I don't think I'm yeah, following. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in in the somewhat bigger population, we we have trouble, and they actually had to develop a special probe for our our folks uh, called the XL probe, that's <laughs> wow, bigger that and is, of course produces a, produces a bigger thump. 
um, uh, in order in order to get the readings. But uh, it has its special challenges as well. It's it's not perfect. I will tell you, for hepatitis C, fiber scan has essentially replaced liver biopsy completely, at least in in our practice. Whereas in fatty liver disease, uh, it, it's more of a it's used more as a negative predictive tool. Uh, and and telling us whether we need to proceed to liver biopsy or not. I I think this is a good opportunity to maybe recap a little bit, and then uh, we might move on to treatment if if no one else has like a big question here. Yeah, did did you want to ask about ultrasound at all, or how that compares to diagnosis at all in comparison to like fiber scan? Well, ultrasound's not very good for diagnosing cirrhosis, right? So it it, it only you don't see the changes on ultrasound until the disease is fairly advanced. Okay. Uh, we, I will often get an ultrasound as part of the workup, but it's uh, just to make sure people don't have any masses or funny looking lumps or bumps and make sure their vasculature is intact, that sort of stuff. But uh, the bottom line is it's not a great tool to figure out if somebody has cirrhosis or not. So I want to do a quick recap kind of for the audience and to make sure I'm not missing anything from the initial uh, for initial portion, then we'll kind of move into the, you know, what, how do you counsel patients once you're diag- once you've diagnosed them and then go- kind of stepping into the treatment. It sounds like many patients with cirrhosis will present with, unfortunately, will present when they've already decompensated. We might catch some people, we might catch some people on the incidentaloma on imaging. And then if we're starting to see lab abnormalities, the big ones that should kind of key us in are platelets, albumin, INR abnormalities. And in that case, we would uh, start to kind of do the do our workup. We should consider an ALT for females normal to be 20 or less. And for men, it's 30, uh, males 30 or less. And then as far as the 5-4 score, it's sort of like if it's on the extremes, low or high, you know, that's that's useful, right? So low people were less worried, high, that that's somebody that, you know, can we consider that a confirmation of cirrhosis? I guess I'm realizing a question there as I'm saying it. Is it, or is it sort of just supports that that person might need a fibro scan or a biopsy? That's a good question. It, it depends on the sort of clinical scenario. I would say that if a person, say a fatty liver disease patient, has a high FIB4, we, we tend, because of the uncertainties with that, we would tend to move towards biopsy. Okay. Um, Whereas if it's in a uh, if it's in like a hepatitis C patient, someone that's you know thin, and, and we have sort of better performance with that that test, we'll also often just say yes, this person has cirrhosis and move move forward. Cyrus, did you want to get back to the case and sort of let's move into some of the counseling and initial management? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so, so stepping back into uh, Miss Jones's case, so uh, basically with her, what she decided to do was send her for. Um, um, transient elastography, uh, the non-invasive test you discussed. And so it did come back concerning for cirrhosis. And so the question for her, you know, she's got, she's, she's pretty minimally symptomatic at this point. And so, um, what I'm curious about is, uh, what evidence-based interventions are there, uh, for those both at risk of cirrhosis and then those who, who carry the diagnosis like she does. Um, and then I'm also curious, you know, what could have maybe, helped her out if, if this was caught sooner, if she came in sooner, and uh, what could have been done from a medical standpoint. Um, and, and certain things I was hoping we could touch on would be like um, pioglitazone, liraglutide, uh, and then other things that we hear about like coffee consumption, increasing your coffee consumption, and then maybe a high-protein diet. 
Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's just start with uh, what kind of things do we need to worry about in someone that carries a diagnosis of cirrhosis? Sure. I, I always counsel my patients uh, in clinic that cirrhosis can really kill you in three ways. Uh, and this is kind of how I think about it. One is with liver failure, right? So if we, uh, and this is mostly for us physicians to worry about, we look at their labs, uh, we check their MELD score, which we can talk about later, and we kind of determine is this somebody that needs to move forward with a transplant evaluation or can we just continue to monitor them? Uh, the second way that cirrhosis can kill you is with variceal bleeding. Um, and uh, so one thing that we can talk about is, is uh, variceal surveillance, which is very important for the cirrhotic patient. Uh, upwards of one patient out of four um, who has a varice, an index variceal bleed will, will die of that variceal bleed or, or the complications of the variceal bleed afterwards. Uh, so it's not something we want to find when they're uh, shooting out a geyser of blood in the emergency room. We want to uh, we want to find this ahead of time because we have very effective strategies to keep them from hemorrhaging to begin with. And, and lastly, but the one that's probably close closest to my heart uh, that kills people with cirrhosis is liver cancer. And this is the one I think we fall down on uh, quite a bit. Uh, the risk of liver cancer each year for a cirrhotic patient is somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five percent. Um, and that depends on their underlying etiology of their cirrhosis. But the recommendations for a cirrhotic patient are fairly clear that they need to be having ultrasound, at least ultrasound surveillance uh, of their abdomen, of their liver every six months uh, once they get a diagnosis of cirrhosis. And, and depending on who you ask, you can add alpha-fetoprotein monitoring to that as well. Uh, that was dropped from the guidelines, uh, but the, there are studies showing that it does increase the sensitivity of the surveillance. So can I ask, and I'm sorry to do this a little bit out of order, but after the initial diagnosis is made, so you do your testing, you confirm a diagnosis of cirrhosis, can I just ask how you even explain what that means to a patient, particularly someone who maybe doesn't even have, say, a heavy alcohol history or hepatitis, like if you have a um, maybe someone with longstanding NASH or something like that, how do you explain what cirrhosis is and, and um, to help them conceptualize it? Yeah, that's a great question. That's one of the things I absolutely love to do in clinic is just sit and talk to people about cirrhosis and, and, and educate them. Because I think a lot of people don't really understand what cirrhosis is. A lot of people don't know what the liver is to begin with, <laughs> nor, nor, nor where it is or what it does. Um, and so something as complicated as cirrhosis is, is really uh, just blows people's minds. But, but what I kind of explain to people uh, that cirrhosis is, is that um, it's a liver that has developed uh, so much scar tissue over the years from being damaged that it can no longer regenerate or fix itself, and it starts to become dysfunctional, basically. Um, a normal liver is a very regenerative organ. Uh, when we do living donor liver transplant on people, we take two-thirds of a liver out of a normal, healthy human being and put it into another human being. And within a month, uh, th both of those livers will have uh, achieved almost 90% of their original mass. I mean, wow. this, this is an organ that can regrow itself tremendously. And the, uh, the liver tries to regenerate. It tries to fix itself. But when you damage the liver for long periods of time with any noxious stimuli, w whether that's uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or alcohol or viral hepatitis, 
basically the liver starts to lay down scar tissue, just like any other tissue that's being damaged. If you have a heart attack, you get a scar in your heart. You cut your arm, you get a scar in your arm. If you damage your liver long enough, you start to get scar in your liver. And over time, you get enough scar that the liver can no longer fix itself anymore. You know, it tries to fix itself, but it ends up as this kind of lumpy, bumpy mess that doesn't work real well. So that's that's kind of how I explain cirrhosis to to the typical patient in clinic. That's great. And to tie back into Cyrus's initial uh, initial question with Miss Jones, so you've just given her your great explanation of of what is cirrhosis. What sort of things are you going to tell her to do uh, with her lifestyle? Like things like uh, some of the things were on, on his list were like pro- high protein diet, salt restriction, um, some of the blood pressure management things. Uh, can you give drink us your tons ba- of caffeine? Your your basic basic spiel there. Yeah, so uh, that, that kind of moves me into my what can you do to keep yourself alive when you have uh, cirrhosis sort of Perfect. sort of uh, uh, number one is continue to see me every six months. Uh, there you go. Excellent advice. Well, a lot of it depends on the underlying etiology. So in our particular patient, she has NASH. And what, what can we do to for the NASH patient to prevent progression of the disease? And unfortunately, uh, not much at, at, at this point in, in time. The one thing that has clearly been shown to work is weight loss and um, uh, a weight loss of seven to 10 percent uh, that that is sustained uh, of their body weight uh, will will shut down the inflammation of NASH very frequently. In, in one study, it was 100 percent of patients had, had resolution of NASH or the inflammation. Uh, associated with that. And so that's the biggest thing that I counsel people on. And I usually give them 10% of their body weight as a goal because that's fairly achievable for most people. You know, for a 200-pound person, that's only 20 pounds. So, you know, uh, I talk to them a lot about diet if they have uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, I The problem with diet is that there's no great consensus on what what is the right diet uh, for this for this kind of thing. Um, I, I have my own uh, sort of biases uh, on, on this front that are not terribly evidence-based, um, but uh, I, I think there are certain things that have clearly been shown to be detrimental, such as you know high fructose corn syrup containing things, sodas, uh, sweetened things, simple carbohydrates. I, I'm, I'm a big believer that carbohydrates drive this disease. Uh, and, and, and drive insulin resistance. There are funny things that we tell people with cirrhosis, like uh, to avoid raw shellfish. Uh, people don't think about that one very often, but uh, there's a lovely bacteria called Vibrio vulnificus uh, <laughs> that lives in brackish water and classic. concentrates itself in uh, in oyster beds uh, that can, that for whatever reason, kills people with liver disease with amazing efficiency. Um, and we actually had one of our uh, pre-liver transplant patients die after stepping on a shell down at the beach uh, just about oh, five years ago. And awful. he died of uh, Vibrio sepsis uh, within four days. And so we, I do tell them to stay away from raw shellfish and, and oyster beds. And then vaccinations are important. You know, uh, we uh, you know always recommend they vaccinated against hepatitis A and B, make sure they get their flu shot. Uh, pneumonia vaccine we usually recommend as well. 
And then a lot of lifestyle modification stuff, depending on kind of what they're doing with their life. You know, uh, if they're um, drinking alcohol, obviously we're not big fans of that. Uh, though, believe it or not, it's fairly controversial in, in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And, and, and some people believe that small amounts of alcohol, especially wine, may be beneficial in this patient population. But uh, for the most part, I, I don't. Uh, I, I say that there's no safe amount that we can really recommend mm. in this stay away. Is there a role for bariatric surgery? Yeah. Uh, clearly, uh, bariatric surgery does work um, and uh, helps them lose weight. But the problem that we're dealing with here is that this patient has cirrhosis. Right. And, yep. um, <laughs> and and the, uh, most bariatric surgeons that I know of get very gun-shy around cirrhosis and, and doing surgeries in the cirrhotic patient. The, the risk of surgical complications in the cirrhotic patient goes up quite significantly. Uh, we, have, we have some nice... Uh, predictive models for that uh, based off the MELD score that were made at Mayo Clinic, which help uh, try to figure that out. Um, but I, I would say a lot of the sort of treatment type things that, that you have here um, are good preventative things for your fatty liver disease patient or, or your, your NASH patient, but, but don't but once they develop cirrhosis, they're not necessarily, or they certainly haven't been shown to, to decrease their progression of their disease. Uh, the question about coffee is a good one. I, I, I think the evidence for coffee and its uh, benefit to the liver is fairly overwhelming and, um, and, and very broad based in both animal and human studies. I, coffee is, coffee's been shown to decrease the risk of cirrhosis, to decrease the risk of liver cancer, to decrease the risk of fatty liver disease uh, pretty much across the board. And it seems like the more coffee you drink, the better. Um, there's a, there's <laughs> so is there an association between coffee intake and weight loss, though? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I'm not. I'm not because sure. maybe it's the weight loss just from being hyper. Yeah, <laughs> I you know when I give talks uh, to primary care doctors, sometimes I, I'll I'll put up right at the beginning that like, the good news is that coffee is good for your liver, and I said, but the the ultra double latte mocha choco cream. Uh, from Starbucks. I, I think the jury is still out on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to see some evidence for like cold brew. See if that's yeah. even better. Well, tea doesn't work. Um, so, yeah. you know, some people think it's caffeine, uh, but um, the bottom line is that tea is caffeinated and has a lot mm -hmm. of similar compounds, but it doesn't have the same benefits. That yeah, I've, uh, I've heard of some of the, the potential, potentially some of the oils in it that could be mm -hmm. filtered out by a coffee filter. So I wonder if a cold brew, which doesn't filter any of that, would be even better. I haven't Sounds seen like anything on that. Fascinating study. You should do that. <laughs> I think it's great. Well, yeah, we can all find Font out if we should Starbucks. pay twice as much for our nitro, cold brew, whatever coffee that they're yeah, now. Exactly. Well, okay. Do we have Just any more? Uh, I think, Cyrus, I think you need to get us back on the rails here. Where will we go sure, next sure. with this? Number. Well, no, that's great talking about coffee. So it sounds like, <laughs> so it sounds like for, uh, for Ms. Jones, unfortunately, some of the, uh, the evidence-based interventions, things like pioglitazone, vitamin E, liraglutide, probably a little late for her, um, given that she already has cirrhosis, but maybe could have been be uh, beneficial if, if we identified, you know, NAFLD earlier on in, in her uh, in her course. Um, so, so that being said, um, you know, you did mention, Scott, you talked a little bit about variceal screening uh, and, and, and here that we have this diagnosis now of cirrhosis. Uh, I think a good question would be what options are there uh, for the primary care provider in terms of, you know, referring uh, and then, uh, you know, what's in vogue now? What are we doing? What aren't we doing? Well, I'm a gastroenterologist. So what's in vogue is upper endoscopy. Maybe I <laughs> pay, my, 
pay my kids private school tuition. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. I love go. your I love your uh, honesty. <laughs> no, but the the big the, the big kind of sea change with this uh, was uh, I think last year when the Bovino Six criteria came out. Uh, Bovino Six is a big big uh, conference on cirrhosis and portal hypertension in Europe. And they, they came out with some interesting guidelines for a couple of things that we're going to discuss. But but in the, one of the biggest things that came out was they said that if you do a fiber scan on somebody and their liver stiffness is less than 20 kilo, kilopascals, which is the unit that we use to measure stiffness, and their platelet level is above 150, that you did not need to do variceal surveillance on, on that patient. Um and that their risk of having varices was less than two percent. Uh, I think less than four to two to four percent uh, risk of having varices. This is uh, this is one that this is a recommendation that I think uh, many of us are a little bit slow to adopt. Um, I, I I personally use it a lot on patients I don't necessarily want to scope, um, <laughs> like like the eighty eight year old cirrhotic who's very frail, you know, or something like right. that. Uh, I'll use it as an excuse not to do an upper endoscopy. Uh, but I would say right now the, the gold standard is still upper endoscopy. Uh, um, to you got to get in there and visualize the varices, not only to see, you know, are they there or are they not, but how big are they? Do they have high-risk signs? they have red whale signs? Do they have signs of recent bleeding? Uh, do they have gastric varices uh, that, that oftentimes uh, we, we don't see? Um, so upper endoscopy um, – Fortunately or unfortunately, remains kind of the go-to test uh, for for this. Gotcha. So yeah, obviously, the elastography itself is limited in that you can't really quantify anything. Right. Gotcha. Right. Exactly. So is this this is at the time of diagnosis. You would you would do screening for esophageal varices, and how often is it repeated after that? Uh, it depends on uh, a couple of variables. Like if, if we do an upper endoscopy and there's no varices, then it's three years. We do it every three years. Uh, whereas if the patient has uh, small varices, uh, depending on how advanced their liver disease is, we would do it every one to two years uh, to check for, um, to see if they become large. Because with varices, it really boils down to are they small or are they large? Uh, if they're small, we just watch them. If they're large, we've got to treat them. Any other testing that we should do up front here? So we we sort of told told her what cirrhosis is. We've counseled her on some lifestyle things. Now we've kind of got, looked for varices. What anything else that we need to do up front? Are you starting medications at this point? Can you kind of give us your the the basics? Well, let's let's just talk about medications. What a cliffhanger! To be continued next week on The Curbsiders, we will continue to talk about the management of cirrhosis with Dr. Scott Matherly, so join us then. And now, for the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast or sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge and we want your input, so send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com or reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, here with Dr. Cyrus Askin. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I do not like that. <laughs> and this remains <laughs> all of him. That was a little bit creepy. <laughs>
<laughs> Can we do that again? Nope. I could cut it out, Stuart. <laughs> I, I'd, like it, I'd like it to stay in. And thank you to our all our correspondents who are helping to write and produce the show. On Twitter, we have Hannah Abrams. Beth Garbatelli is on Instagram. And Chris Chumanchu is on Facebook. Thank you and good night. Hey, uh, hey, hey, Matt. Um, th- this is not the pun. I, were you recording me the entire time? Yeah, of course. Okay, you're not like, re- e- even now during the intro and outro. Yeah, like like even then. Okay, okay, just making sure. <sighs>